So we're in Romans 3, verse 1. And this comes at the end of two chapters where Paul sets out kind of what his topics are and where he's headed. He starts out with the plan of, with the gospel. The gospel is the plan of salvation that centers on the righteousness of God. And that righteousness of God is, is important for faith. And so faith is kind of the goal that he's headed toward. But, it, but there are impediments to faith, to trust in God, and one of them is the wrath of God uh, being revealed in uh, chapter 1, verse 18. And so he explains the wrath of God as God giving people up to the consequences of their choice. And then he, he lists what they've given up to, the sins that everybody's in, and that is his preamble to another concern he has, that who are you to judge? You have done these things. Who are you to judge another who's doing them? He says uh, that everyone is judged according to the law, and, and yet it depends on how they, how they get to that as to whether they can be righteous or not. In other words, the law doesn't make a person righteous, and this is what Paul's going to contend in future mm-hmm. chapters. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, we are judged by the law, and, and we have to work that out in future chapters. And then he talks about circumcision. And that real circumcision is the circumcision of the heart. So now we come to chapter 3. I'm going to read uh, chapter 3 or 2, verses 25 to the end, so that we have the context for what happens in chapter 3. Circumcision is indeed in value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Mm. The circumcision, of course, being the sign of the covenant. If you break the law, you break the covenant. Therefore, your circumcision is no value. So, if those who are uncircumcised keep the requirements of the law, will not their uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then those who are physically uncircumcised but keep the law will condemn you that have a written code and circumcision, but break the law. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. Mm -hmm. Real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It is spiritual and not literal. Such a person receives praise from others, not from others, but from God. So he's now establishing something that's very, very crucial, I think, to everything else in, in the book of Romans. That real righteousness comes from within. It is not external. So when we talk about righteousness of trust, trust is an internal, it's an internal choice that we can trust, and it's engendered by someone's trustworthiness. Mm-hmm. So now we come to chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. For in the first place the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? 
By no means, although everyone is a liar, let God be true. Be, let God be proved true, as it is written, so that you may be justified in your words and prevail in your judging. This is an Old Testament text taken from Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's prayer after sinning against Uriah with Bathsheba. And he asks God to be shown to be upright, to be, be shown to be righteous in what he's set his sentence, and shown to be upright, so that he may be justified, acquitted in your words and prevail in your judging. And, and those words, the words there are what, uh, let's, uh, I'm going to get a Bible for you so you can keep your place in your phone and look at Psalm 51 so we can get the context. It's actually verse 4. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start with verse 1. Mm-hmm. This is actually a psalm that David wrote after Nathan came and pointed the finger at him and said, You are the man. Okay. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your sentence, that is, in your words, and blameless when you pass judgment. I don't have a Hebrew Bible in here, and I probably should have brought one. But you notice the verb is justified and blameless when you pass judgment. But look at Romans 3 and how he quotes it. Although everyone is a liar, let God be proved true, as it is written, so that you may be justified in your words and prevail in your judging. It sounds like the same thing here. And this mm-hmm. is the NRSV. What version do you have? I have NASB, um, NASB. Okay, that's... Check. Um, what does yours say? That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And that's actually what the Greek reads. Yeah. Paul's translation here, and I'm going to have to check this. The Greek in verse 4 of Romans 3 really is so that your words may so that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. It's passive. So to translate it, prevail in your judging, is, is okay because you're dealing with an infinitive. Um, but you're judging in the way that it's formulated, because it's passive, it really is when you are judged. Whereas in Psalm 51, in Hebrew, therefore you, will be, you are righteous in your words, it is words in Hebrew. And you will prevail in your judgment or when you judge. 
And there's a footnote. See, that's verse 6, I think. Yeah. It has, uh, according, the Greek has it as passive when you are judged. So everybody translates it active. Like, God has to be the one doing the judgment. God God could never be judged. That's what the translators think. Mm -hmm. But the Hebrew and the, the Greek, Septuagint, and Paul use a passive when you are judged. Why do you do that? That's a good question. Do you have any idea? I don't know. Why do you want to pass this to us? I think it's because David understands that he has put God on trial and submitted him to, to judgment because of his sin. Hmm. In ancient times, the king was the ambassador for, for, for deity, mm-hmm. to represent deity. If the king messed up and did something unjust, the kings were supposed to be just, and if they did mm-hmm. something unjust, they brought reproach. And I think, I think this is especially true in Hebrew thinking. He brought, David sees himself as bringing reproach and, and a judgment against God. You're, you're king. Look what he did. And now you look bad. And I think that this is also what Paul lies behind Paul's use of that. Of course, Paul is using the Septuagint here. Hmm. And the Septuagint has it as passive. Hmm. So, so the, the question the is, has God the, ever been on trial? Yeah, because the way that the, the prophet brought the, you know, those words to him, like, like he, you know, he's been, he's really that or something. Maybe he, that's why he thought that way, or because the, what the prophet said, put a God in. Well, I think I think it's possible, but I think that I think that this was a consciousness of the Hebrews that everything done on earth affected mm-hmm. what was done in heaven. Yeah, and that even God is affected by our sinning. Mm-hmm. So, that's why Paul says, verse 3, What if some were unfaithful? Will their faithfulness, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And what that means is that our faithlessness can raise questions about God's faithfulness. I mean, how many people have used human unfaithfulness in the church to turn away from God? And, of course, Satan is the accuser who accuses has accused God before he accused any of us. And, and I, I would have to refer us to Job 1 and 2, uh, where God makes Job kind of the center of, of um, a dispute about his character. Mm-hmm. Because the Satan really does speak against God mm-hmm. in court. Mm-hmm. So... We're, we're mulling over verses 4 and 5, John. Okay, thank you. In Romans 3. And I've just suggested that what if some were unfaithful and will their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? I'm suggesting here that Paul sees uh, that every time we sin, we, in a sense, put God on trial. Mm. 
Uh, and that's li what lies behind this is his verse that he quotes from Psalm 51. By no means, although everyone is a liar, let God be proved true as it is written, so that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And I'm, I'm using the footnote <laughs> because in the Greek this is passive infinitive. It's not active. And so therefore it's, it, the recipient of the action is the person itself. Mm -hmm. So God is being judged. This is the way it is in the Septuagint that Paul is quoting. And this is, this is of course in the way he has it here. And you can read the original Hebrew when you judge. But it seems that the Septuagint translators of the Bible uh, had this understanding that David understood that because of his sin against Bathsheba and when Nathan like, brought sentence against him from God, that he had made God look bad. He had made God look unfaithful um, by his own unfaithfulness. Especially as a leader. Right. Well, and I, I was explaining how the king was supposed to always execute justice as a kind of an ambassador for the gods. So, now that, this, now that we've established this, this opens up something even larger. And that is that God has been on trial. And that this is the core of, I think, Paul's understanding. And, and uh, let's go to Colossians for that. And we'll start with verses 19 and 20. Which chapter? Colossians 1. Okay, excuse me. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. That the term "all things" refers to the entire universe. Mm -hmm. So, in Paul's theology, Jesus didn't come just to reconcile us who were hostile to him. He came to provide reconciliation for the entire universe who had questions about him. If we compare that with Revelation, you don't have to turn here. I'll just read it quickly. Revelation, chapter twelve. Satan is referred to as the great dragon is called, who is called oh, the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world and he was thrown down to earth and his angels thrown down with him and then there's a hymn now has come salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. So Satan is, and of course his name, Satan, or his title, actually, Satan is his title. Uh, Hasatan in Hebrew means accuser mm -hmm. or adversary. That is his, that is his title mm -hmm. in the heavenly universe. So just as he accused us, before he accused us, he accused God. Well, the thing that's interesting when I read this is just kind of, because I, I have a tendency in my finite mind to think of the conflict of the ages just kind of, you know, focus here on this earth, because that's what I can barely understand. But, like, how far does it extend throughout the universe? To, 
you know. Well, it seems to me, and, and this goes back to my belief based on Job 1 and 2, Daniel 7, that God has an open court mm. and that anyone can go before God and accuse someone else. And anyone can accuse God. Not that mean that they're right. That doesn't mean they're right at all. But what what I mean is that they get a hearing. And what really stands in court, in, according to Job, is the outcome. Mm -hmm. Go ahead and test him. Mm -hmm. so, so Satan tests Job to the limit. And the outcome, then, is what proves God to be right about Job or wrong about Job. Mm -hmm. So... I think that this all lies behind uh, Paul's thinking as well, uh, that uh, God can be, can be judged, but he will prevail. It's interesting because, like, are the people that, are, that come to this open court to accuse God, or are they just Satan and his followers? Oh, I think some of God's people sometimes, <laughs> yeah. we, yeah. we get impatient or mm -hmm. frustrated, and we say things to God that indicate kind of a judgment. Mm -hmm. why, are you, examples that why are you doing this to me? Yeah. Is a common mm -hmm. one. There's even ex examples of it in the Bible. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Some of the Psalms. Mm -hmm. So, we're going to come back to this later on. But, um, so it, uh, let's look at verse 5 and down to verse 8. Okay. But if our injustice serves to confirm the justice of God, what should we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us, I speak in a human way. Mm -hmm. He's clarifying, this is not his language. He's speaking in their language. Mm -hmm. uh, so God doesn't really inflict wrath, we inflict it on ourselves. But Paul, to make his argument, is going to speak in our way. Is God unjust to let us go? If our just injustice serves to confirm the justice of God. I, I believe, let me look at my Bible, my Greek New Testament, this word, and now we come to the, the very, very important word in Romans, and that is righteousness. My translation insists on sometimes translating it justice, and sometimes translating it righteousness. It's true if you look in Little and Scott, it can be justice, but I've done a very careful study of this word. And it does not mean retributive justice. There's another Greek word for retributive justice that Paul does not use. And that word is similar. I'm going to write them on the board and pronounce them. Otherwise, this won't make too much sense. All words starting in D-I-K, or Delta, Iota, Kappa in Greek, are a family of terms. So... Uh, the word for righteousness is dikaiosune. You can hear the dik in there, mm. dikaiosune. So that's righteousness. The word for penal justice or punishment is decay. <laughs> if Paul wanted to use retributive justice, this is the word he would use, most likely. Look at Acts, the last chapter. And we'll look at verse 3. Paul had gathered a bundle of brushwood and was putting it on the fire when a viper driven by the heat 
fastened itself on his hand. When, his, when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, This man must be a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea. Justice has not allowed him poor, to live. Poor guy. Justice there is decay, that second word. Mm-hmm. You can see what kind of justice it is. Mm-hmm. Retributive justice has not allowed him to live. Of course, Paul takes care of that, and then they think he's a god. But um, <laughs> So, this word, dikaiosune, is, some, is a word we're going to spend some time on, starting next week. Mm-hmm. Because it has a fascinating history. It is almost always used in a moral sense, rather than a legal sense. Mm-hmm. And I've been studying it in Philo. Philo comes the closest to using it as some kind of legal justice, but he uses it as fairness, judging fairly, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. applying things fairly. And that's, if Paul is using a legal sense, uh, which I don't think he is, and I think he's going to confirm that uh, in in this chapter, how I would translate this, but if, on the other hand, our righteousness serves to establish or confirm the righteousness of God. Our unrighteousness establishes the righteousness of God. What should we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath? It doesn't say on us. That's been added by the translators. Mm. God is unrighteous to inflict wrath, inflict wrath by letting us go. As Paul's established in verse 1, and chapter 1, I mean. So we're dealing with righteousness, not justice. Justice is too narrow. Righteousness is broader. It can include how we just how we how we uh, judge someone. It can it can include doing things in the courtroom, but it it also has a much broader, more moral term. And in the earlier periods of this word, it was strictly moral. It wasn't a legal term, really. Mm. I've studied it in Plato. <laughs> For example, and that's how it was used there. So I'm I'm going to bring bring some uh, verses to look at, some evidence to look at next time, and we'll look at this word, and then see what we do with Paul. Yeah, exciting stuff. All right. So let's close for prayer. Mm-hmm. Dear God, we ask as we continue to work our way through Paul that you will give us wisdom, enlightenment, and clear perception. Mm-hmm. This is a, a difficult passage because of Paul's very involved and complicated writing. Mm-hmm. And so we pray that you will unpack this to us in a clear manner. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.